it's a joy to have you with us. We're walking through this gospel of John, just being encouraged by looking at Jesus, walk up to people and just say, I've got life for you. I've got joy. I've got forgiveness. Uh, I've got water for the thirsty. I've got bread for the hungry. I've got light for those in darkness. He just keeps telling us who he is, what he's like, what happens when his kingdom comes in contact with human hearts. And uh, it's just been deeply encouraging to my own faith. I hope it's been the same for you. And we're going to look at yet another text in which Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, and I'm going to lead you good places, rich places, life-giving places. So we're going to see that together in God's word. If you'd follow along with me, I'm going to start reading in verse 1 from John chapter 10. Truly, I tell you, anyone who doesn't enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens it for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all his own outside, he goes ahead of them. The sheep follow because they know his voice. They will never follow a stranger. Instead, they will run away from him because they don't know the voice of strangers. Jesus gave them this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. So here in verse 7, he's going to change the metaphor a little bit. Jesus said again, truly I tell you, I'm the gate for the sheep. So he was the shepherd, now he's talking about being the gate. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I'm the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. A thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he's not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. But I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down, and I have the right to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. And If you would skip down to verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So what makes a Christian live confidently in this world? What makes a Christian live confidently in this world? I'm not talking about um, a personality that's confident. You know, you take an assertiveness test or you, you read a book and then you start to learn how to walk into a room and take charge. I'm not talking about that. Um, I'm talking about this thing that the Old Testament saints sang about. They, they asked the Lord so often in the Psalms and they're asking the Lord to grant them confidence, security in this life. In the midst of a fallen world, they, they ask God to put a rock under our feet in, sh in a shaky 
world, in a shaky culture, let there be something solid, something immovable, something stable about our faith, something unshaken. They, they pray and they ask in their songs that God would secure their footsteps before they take those footsteps. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament will echo these kinds of themes when he tells the church, this is what I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you would be steadfast and immovable. And in John 10, I would submit to you that Jesus is offering a gift to his people. And the gift that he's offering to his people is the gift of immovability. That there, is, there are truths that ground God's people that offer to hold our feet steady in the storm, in trials, in hardship, that puts a rock underneath our feet. That's what Jesus is doing. He's installing foundation under the feet of his disciples. So three truths for us this morning. Three truths that give the Christian unshakable confidence even in trials. Number one, Jesus takes care of me. Jesus takes care of me. So the image that Jesus is working with here, the analogy of a shepherd is one that is very familiar to his audience. They know this world. They know actual shepherds by name. They, they've seen sheep on the hillside before. I googled a picture so that you could see sheep on the hillside and a shepherd on the hillside. And th this isn't something, you know, when Jesus is talking, he didn't have to pull up a picture. They, they knew probably that guy. They, th these are Judean hills. These are Judean sheep. That is probably a Judean man right there. They were very familiar with this kind of pastoral environment, this hillside, sheep on the hillside environment. I, um, I remember a picture that, that my mom has that she shows us every now and then. She'll pull out the old stuff, right? Moms will do this. She'll pull out the old stuff, and she's like, oh, look at this picture. Remember when y'all did this, right? And one of the pictures that we've seen is me and my two siblings, my older brother and my older sister. And it's us at VBS in the, the little church, corrugated metal building on Pontchartrain Boulevard. And that whole room was filled with sheep, uh, not actual sheep. We were the sheep. And this was VBS, and one of the things that you did at VBS is for craft time that year, it was all about sheep and shepherds. And so we had, in the craft room, we had um, big sheets of brown construction paper, and we cut it out, and we made vests. You stapled it together in a way, and you had a vest. And then you went, you put on the vest, and you glued cotton balls to the vest. And so we were all sheep. The room was just filled with sheep, and we all sang Psalm 100. We memorized it. Know that the Lord, he is God. He made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And we sang that song in the fellowship hall, and then we came and sang it for our parents. Right? We were singing about this motif. Well, why did we do that? It seems super culturally remote. Like, why would you get children together in the 1980s and sing about being sheep? Uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Well, it does if you realize that ancient Biblical history is so marinated in this imagery of shepherd, God being our shepherd and we being his sheep. Jacob the patriarch talked about this centuries before Jesus arrives on the scene, a couple thousand years before Jesus. And then King David is pulled off the field. He's a shepherd boy and he's made into a king. And then he writes a song and it's a song that many of us to this day are still very familiar with, and it begins with these words, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And it tells you what God does as our shepherd, what he does for us. 
you know, if you know anything about sheep, and I don't, so I had to do some study about that, but if you find out stuff about sheep, you find out it's not super flattering <laughs> to discover that we get to be sheep in this picture of shepherd and sheep. That's not a super complimentary image. Uh, in the animal kingdom, sheep are noteworthy for being not awesome, right? They're, that's why there's, not a, there's exactly zero colleges that have sheep as their mascot, right? They're, it's because there's, they don't have claws. They don't have any of the great stuff. They have no wings. They have no horns. They don't have teeth that matter, right? They just, they, um, I, I heard that there was a, a professor of philosophy years ago at Bethel College who um, who said that the existence of sheep is proof that evolution can't be true. Because natural selection gave them nothing to fight. It, gave, it didn't give them horns. It didn't give them teeth. It, gave, it didn't give them a gun. It gave them absolutely nothing to actually, you know, move forward in life. They're, um, they scare easy. They're not known for being intelligent. They're stubborn. They wander off and can't find their way back, so they can't find food. They can't hunt. They can't fight. They can't protect themselves. Years ago, uh, an actual shepherd wrote a book, and it's called uh, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And he just unpacked from his own knowledge what these metaphors mean, given his experience in the life of tending sheep. And he talks about, in the book, he talks about a danger that shepherds know about sheep that's called when a sheep is cast down or a sheep is cast. And here's, here's what he said that means. A heavy or long-fleeced sheep will lie down in a hollow or depression in the ground. Often it will then roll on its side to stretch or relax. Suddenly the center of gravity shifts and its feet no longer touch the ground. It starts to panic and paw frantically, which often just makes it worse. And he says, and then you come up on said sheep and you just see it laying on its back with its arms straight into the air. It's completely been immobilized. What was it doing? It wasn't trying to be an athlete. It was laying down for a nap and it couldn't figure out how to balance its own equilibrium. They're not known for being amazingly intelligent creatures. So this is in our notes to help us remember the Bible's primary picture of helplessness is that of a sheep without a shepherd. The Gospel of Mark um, records how Jesus would just, um, he would come and he would work miracles for a whole town would come out to him and he would just heal them just all day long. He would just be laying his hands and healing people. And Mark's Gospel records that he, Jesus looks out at these massive crowds and it says he had compassion for he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And here's what gives um, an edge of a confrontational tone to Jesus' words in John chapter 10. It's, it's because these religious leaders that are standing right in front of him in John 10, they were supposed to be spiritual shepherds. And instead of caring for the sheep, and feeding the sheep, they were feeding themselves. They didn't care about the sheep. The sheep were incidental. They, they burdened the sheep. Jesus would tell them in another place, he said, you stack burdens on them and you don't lift a finger to help them. So they just, they, they sort of had smirks on their faces when people sinned and were locked in shame because it guarantees you're going to be back next Sunday. It guarantees you need us. We got job security as long as you keep being the failures that you are. And so they would, they would pile burden and shame and guilt on the people, and Jesus steps into John 10, and he says, enough, that ends now. 
Everybody's going to know who you are and who I am by the end of this word. And so you have, Jesus draws up a little play. It's a little, it's a little Bible skit. And in the skit, there are four roles that he's giving out. He's casting four roles. There's the role of the sheep. There's the role of the wolves. There's the role of false shepherds that he calls hired hands. And then there's the role of the good shepherd. And you can imagine the religious leaders, they're all sticking up their hands because they want to call dibs on being the shepherds, the good shepherds. And Jesus says, actually, I had you in mind for the thieves and robbers in verse 1. Like, I've already cast you in the role that actually fits what you've been doing as you afflict God's people. I think, in that sense, there's backstory behind John chapter 10. Jesus loved the Old Testament. He was thoroughly versed in the Old Testament. And the people in his audience were thoroughly versed in the Old Testament. And there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that God spoke through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 34. And in Ezekiel 34... God is rebuking Israel's shepherds. And he's getting in their face. It's a dark period in Israel's history. And he's saying, it's your fault that the people are in the sad and anemic condition that they're in. Here's what God says. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say, you have not strengthened the weak, healed the sick, bandaged the injured, brought back the strays, or sought the laws. Just pause for a second. That's what pastors do. So we're about to have our elder selection process. That's kicking in right now. So when you nominate elders, nominate guys who heal the sick and strengthen the weak and bandage the injures and bring back the strays and seek the lost. And, and God says, instead, here's what you've done. You've ruled them with violence and cruelty. And he goes on to say this. So God says, what you have failed to do as Israel's shepherds, I'm going to do it myself. I'll search for my flock, God says. I'll rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. I'll bring them out from the peoples and gather them. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord. Well, doesn't that put a different complexion on John chapter 10? Because now Jesus comes in John chapter 10, and he is fulfilling the promise made centuries before by the prophet Ezekiel when God said, Enough, I'm fed up with the way that Israel's being shepherded. I'm gonna come myself and tend my lambs. And here's Jesus in John 10, driving off wolves. If you've ever wanted to hear Jesus' shepherd voice, driving off wolves, you hear it in John chapter 10. He comes in filled with the spirit of God. He is righteously indignant. He is fed up with these religious leaders. Why? Because they have built a brand shaming the broken. That's what they've done. And so Jesus puts himself between the sheep and the false shepherds, right? The man born blind, we talked about him last week in John chapter 9. I think he's standing right there in John chapter 10. Matter of fact, later on in verse 21, it's going to show you the proximity of that healing of the man born blind and what's happening in, in chapter 10. So he's probably right there. He's wet from the waters of Siloam. He's blinking and looking through his brand new eyes. He's just been kicked out of the synagogue. He's just been browbeaten by these religious leaders. And Jesus stands in front of that man and in front of his sheep, and he looks out at these false shepherds, and he says, your ministry of affliction is over. They're coming with me. And I'm going to lead them into life. Look, the, the, the thief that's stealing and killing and destroying in this text technically is the false shepherds, the human leaders. 
And he says, your ministry of destroying these people and stealing from these people and burying them under guilt, it's, it's over. Now I'm calling my sheep by name and they're gonna hear me and they're gonna follow me because I'm their shepherd. And he's using his shepherd voice all over John chapter 10. And What does Jesus say? Like not, not just historically, not just in the first century to this original audience. What does he say to you this morning if you're buried in guilt and shame? Jesus says to this day to people buried in guilt and shame right here in this room, he says, you want life? Come with me. I have life and I have it abundantly. Anybody who wants in on life, follow me. That's the promise of the gospel. We, in the grand scheme of things, we lose nothing in following Jesus. That's what Paul says. Anything I lost wasn't worth having. I've gained everything in Jesus. Look, if only, um, if only the world knew what the real Jesus offers. Maybe, maybe you're brand new in faith. Maybe you're, you're like the guy in John chapter 9. Brand new in your faith. Let me tell you something that a cynical and unbelieving world is not going to tell you. And it's this. Because you have decided to follow Jesus Christ, he's going to be faithful to you today. And he's going to be faithful. You can call it now. He's going to be faithful tomorrow and the next day. And the day after that, and when the, when the storm comes and breaks in on your life and night falls and trial comes and shakes you to your core, he's going to be faithful. And once that storm has blown over, you're going to find yourself standing. Not because of your greatness or your resilience or your true grit or anything like that. You're going to find yourself standing on the far side of that storm because your shepherd's going to make you stand. He's going to hold your feet steady in the wind, and you're going to praise him on the other side of it. That's truth from his word. He's going to be faithful yesterday, today, and forever. He's going to put a rock beneath your feet when the world is shaking. He's going to teach your soul to sing Psalm 46. Though the earth gives way and the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, we have God as our fortress. Look, I, I love John 10 because for years I, I knew what it was like to try so hard to be holy in my own strength and to, to come up short and constantly battle that doubt of have I measured up to have earned the grace of God, and I would just be exhausted day after day, just exhausted from trying in the pursuit of assurance of my salvation, the pursuit of the assurance of God's grace by my good works. And John 10, <laughs> if that's your story, John 10 runs to your rescue, and John 10 says, listen to your shepherd, drive off the wolves of can-do spirituality. He drives off the wolves of bootstrap holiness. And he welcomes you into grace. He says, you want life, you're coming with me. <laughs> That's what a good shepherd can say, right? Jesus, he tells his disciples in the hearing. I love that these wrist-slapping moralists are standing right there. And Jesus is saying to his followers, you don't need them to get to heaven. I'm the gate to heaven. 
You believe in me. You don't have to jump through hoops. Forget that. You follow me. Life is yours. Abundant life is yours. I'm the gate to heaven. Jesus stands in John 10, arms extended, not only to his original audience, arms extended here in this room. And what's he saying? Everybody who wants life, you're coming with me. Everybody who wants life, follow me. Christian confidence is rooted in that truth. Number one, Jesus takes care of me. It's rooted in truth. Number two, Jesus died for me. I want to teach us a word from the uh, theological glossary, if you will. It's a, and it's a term worth knowing. Substitutionary atonement. Say that with me. Substitutionary atonement. So Jesus is talking about what he does and what he accomplishes on the cross. You can see that kind of language in verse 17. I lay down my life. He's talking about the cross. Verse 15, I lay down my life, important word, for the sheep. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays, his, lays down his life for the sheep. Those are all references to the sacrificial, substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross. There is this glorious little word in the New Testament, and it's featured multiple times. It occurs all throughout the New Testament, and it's the little Greek word, huper. And it's often translated in the English word for. It means in behalf of. Who pair? He's using that word right here. I lay down my life in behalf of the sheep. It's substitutionary atonement. Why do we need substitutionary atonement? Because we ourselves deserve to die. Because we have sinned against a holy God. And there's no way we can make it right on our own. There's no... There's no list of chores that we can do to right things. We can't pay the debt that we owe to a holy God. So what words ring out from ancient history in the prophet Isaiah in chapter 53? It's the reality of how far we had gone astray. All we, the prophet says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. What's the answer to sheep who have strayed from a holy God. And it says, but the Lord, the Father, has laid on him, the Messiah, the iniquity of us all. There's who pair. That's substitutionary atonement. He, the Father, lays on the Son the sins of the sheep. My sin on Jesus. <laughs> the great exchange, Martin Luther called this, Jesus, the Savior, gets my sin, and I somehow come away from the cross with his righteousness. Who would have imagined news this good? What's it mean? Two things. It means we failed so deeply that he had to die for us. We failed so deeply that he had to die for us. Our sin necessitated the cross. If God wanted to save us, Jesus had to die for us. I told you last week about my college experience and how my faith suddenly felt so alive. Everything was clicking, and I was so hungry for truth, and I was looking everywhere I could to learn more and more about the gospel and God's word. And, uh, and then I, I wanted to continue my education, so I applied to Nichols State University to finish my degree, and I, I auditioned for a music scholarship to try to help me financially there. I didn't think this, the audition went very well because I had never been in an audition where they cut you off in the middle of your song. 
But that's exactly what happened. They cut me off in the middle of my song. Well, I sat down at the piano in front of the jury of the music professors and so forth, and I was going to sing a worship song. And it was a, it was a new song at the time, and it, it was so, it had turned on so many lights in my heart and in my mind, so I sang this song, and the song just tells the story of what happened the day that Jesus was crucified. And then you come into the chorus, and it's substitutionary atonement. It says, it was my sin that nailed him there. It was my cross he had to bear. And I, I sang through the chorus, so I'd sung verse one, and I'd sung the chorus, and I was about to come to the biggest moment of the song, right? This is the part that really tests your tenor range. And I was gonna dig deep and go all the way up for the bridge, and that's when they said, thank you very much for your audition, and that was it. And in that moment, in my, my zeal for all these truths that I was just singing, uh, singing, I wanted to say to them, you missed the best part. And I'm not talking about like, like the higher range of what's coming next, but the bridge says, he died for me. He washed me clean. I am redeemed. These truths were so fresh in my mind, so fresh in my heart, and I was so on fire. Why? Because I was realizing more and more in that season of my life that my assurance of God's love and his grace was not determined by my performance, but Christ's performance in my place. That little word who pair in behalf of was leveraging its power in my soul. Is it doing that for you? You believe the good news of the gospel. Look, some, some of you followers of Jesus, because we live in a fallen world, trials are coming for us, right? You only have to live long enough and we will suffer because we live in a broken world. Some of you, the trial that's coming isn't necessarily going to be a trial of uh, physical pain, chronic uh, suffering of that kind, a crippling loss of some kind. The, the trial that's coming for you, maybe most eminently, is a trial of Doubt is going to come in like the 82nd Airborne, and it unwelcome, suddenly doubt flies in and lands on your soul, and Satan, who's frequently termed and described as the accuser of the brethren, he's going to pull up close, and he's going to be right here in your ear, and what's he going to say? He's going to say, you, you are a train wreck, and this is going to be the hardest part of that trial. He's going to be absolutely right. That's what's going to make it really difficult because you're, like, you're going to be like, who, how can I argue with that? That's just a fact. I'm a train wreck right now. And he's going to leverage that to drive you away from Christ. And he's going to say, you're not his. You are not his. How could you be as stained as you are, as tattered as you are, as failed and faulty as you are? Look, John 10 comes and says, I want to just install this for a future day. It's a rock, and I'm going to put it under your feet for the day that the enemy comes. And it's going to be, that rock is the doctrine of the atonement. <laughs> Romans 5, 8, God commended his love toward us in that while we were still train wrecks, Christ died for us. Of course I'm a train wreck. I knew that going in. He knew that on day one. I've never not been a train wreck, but Jesus died to save me. That's the glory of the gospel. <laughs> Hymn writer, born in 1851, her name was Eliza Hewitt. 
And she knew about this accuser and what he did in the ears of believers. So she wrote a hymn to fend off the doubts and accusations of the enemy. And here's the words that she wrote. My faith has found a resting place. I love that. My faith has found a resting place. Not in device nor creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Man, that just never gets old. We failed so deeply he had to die for us. He loved us so deeply that he was glad to die for us. He was glad to die for us. Hebrews 12 says that Jesus despised the shame and endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus voluntarily went to the cross. It was the plan all along. He didn't, he didn't stumble into the wrong neighborhood and get hung up. That's not what happened. He told his disciples all along, hey, I'm here. Son of man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. I'm going to be hung up for you. He was telling them in advance. And here he says in verse 18, nobody's going to take my life from me. I'm going to die on my own. I'm going to die because I want to. I'm going to die because I love you and I'm glad to die for you, to save you. That's, that's the glory of the gospel. Dr. Um, Dr. Mike Bullmore was a professor of homiletics preaching at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. My whole method of sermon preparation comes from Dr. Mike Bullmore. One of the stories that he loves to tell, he's probably in his mid-60s now, one of the stories that he loves to tell is a story from when he was five years old, and he said, I was in Sunday school class, and my teacher was teaching us some things, and he said, I had a curious soul, and she saw that on one particular Sunday, and so after class, he said, I remember her saying, Mikey, come over here. And she calls him over, and she gets on her knee, and she says, I, I want I you to remember something for the rest of your life. So I'm going to close five words in your hands. And he said, with each passing word, she, she folded a finger into my hand, and she said, Christ died for our sins. And he said, she looked at me, and I was five years old, and she said, you hang on to that truth for the rest of your life and that truth will hold on to you. And he said, some 50 years later, he said, my hand is still closed over this truth. Jesus died for me. Change your life the moment you believe that. Let me ask you, have you closed your hand over that truth? You could do that this morning. You can hear God calling your name, beckoning you to find salvation through the cross of Jesus Christ, and you can turn from whatever it is you were trusting in five minutes ago, and you can put your trust in Jesus Christ and say, I want to follow you. And he says, I got life. You're coming with me. Follow me. And your hand closes around this truth. He died for me. Jesus takes care of me. Jesus died for me, and the third truth breeds Christian confidence amid trials. Jesus will never let me go. Jesus will never let me go. I think my favorite thing about this passage is the authority in Jesus' voice. 
the authority in Jesus' voice. The way Jesus talks in this text reminds me of one of my favorite psalms. So Psalm 29 is basically the resume of what God's voice can do in a person's life and in the world. And it just lays it out there. Here's a section of it. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. It shatters the cedars of Lebanon. The hardest cedar in the ancient world was Lebanon cedar, and he says it shatters those cedars. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple all cry glory. And Jesus is God. He is the son of man. In John 10, his resume is showing. He says, when I speak with this voice, all my sheep come with me. I'll call them by name and they will follow me. He's not asking. It's not a hypothesis. They're going to follow me because he uses his shepherd's voice. Right? How, why do we engage in evangelism the way that we do? Locally, in our city, why do we engage in evangelism among the nations, even in places that are hard to reach, places that perhaps have been resistant to the gospel for centuries? Why, why have we not given up hope on those places in the world? Because in John 10, Jesus doesn't say, there might be one flock and one shepherd. I really hope that that's going to happen someday in the future. He doesn't say in verse 16, I fully intend to bring my sheep into this fold. We're going to see if they come or not. No, he's not using if language. He is using sovereign language. They will hear my voice. They will follow me. I'm going to give them eternal life, and nobody's going to snatch them out of my hand. It is Jesus large and in charge all over this entire chapter. Look, (laughs) my mom... Is, is an elegant woman. She is, um, she's classy. I've rarely heard her ever raise her voice because uh, she doesn't have to. Matter of fact, when her voice gets lower, you better pay attention. So it's that sort of thing. But, but, um, but she had an ability, like every other mom, she has a mom voice. And so my brother and I, we could be playing down the street. We could be at Ryan Hennessy's house two doors down and across the street. We could be at Greg Bothman's house five doors down on our side. We could... We could be anywhere right on, on our, in our play zone, and uh, if mom wanted us to come eat dinner, we didn't have cell phones. So what did she do? All she had to do was open the front door of the house, 5101 Elmwood, open the front door, and say one word, boys. And she would say it. She would dig so deep, and she would say it, and it would just be whatever we were doing. We, was just, we, we heard mom's voice. We heard the word boys. We know exactly what that means. And had you heard it on our block on Elmwood Parkway, you would have thought when she said boys, all the boys were coming. The whole city in New Orleans, all the boys are coming for dinner to the Mason house because she dug deep and she used her mom voice. Well, look, Jesus has a shepherd voice, and he uses it in John 10. He digs deep, and he says, sheep, follow, and here they come. And he says, and I've got sheep who are outside this fold. You can't see them from here. And I'm going to call, and they're going to come from the nations. They're going to come from every tribe and tongue and people. And I'm going to say, follow, and they're going to flock to me. The voice of the shepherd drowns out every other voice. I love this. Jesus is huge. In John 10, he calls the whole thing in advance. The sheep are mine. I love them. I've come for the sheep. I'm going to die for the sheep. 
I'm going to save the sheep. You can bet I'm bringing all the sheep with me when this whole thing is over. John 10 doesn't feature Jesus as one who hopes to save. John 10 features Jesus as one who saves, <laughs> accomplishes salvation. He takes your mess. He pays your debts. He calls your name. He gives you life. He keeps you safe. He gets you home. It is your comprehensive, stem to stern, Savior. Jesus wants to make you steadfast and immovable. He wants to give believers an ability to confidently live before him, even in the face of trials. So what truths does Jesus fold into our little hands as his children? Number one, Jesus will take care of me. Jesus died for me. And Jesus will never let me go. I want to give you four very brief takeaways. What's it mean for us? Number one, let's trust God's promise. Let's trust God's promise. The, the one who died for you has you in his grip and he's not going to lose you. Number two, let's help those who doubt. So how are we as a church? How are we with struggling believers, people who, who lack assurance of God's grace? Are we tender with doubting Christians? Number three, this is related to parent commissioning. Let's partner with parents to raise a generation that loves Jesus. How do we partner with parents? Let's put these truths into their hands. On, on the first floor in preschool ministry, on the third floor in Brook Hills Kids, as they get older and older, you see the ministries of the church and the parents of the church, Christian parents and, and those working here as volunteers, all coming together to say, we want to fold these truths that will change their lives and that will hold them forever. We want to fold these truths into their hands and forth. And finally, let's make the gospel known. The world needs to hear that Jesus has everything. He has life in that more abundantly. He has his cross to cover all of our sins. Those who put their trust in him, he'll hold us forever. He'll never let us go. Look, why would we stash grace like this when we can give it away generously among the nations so that they might be glad and experience life that is in Jesus and him alone?